Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled A Visit and a Song, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for December 23rd, 2018, the fourth Sunday in Advent. The angel Gabriel leaves, and Mary runs. With haste, the Gospel writer tells us on this fourth Sunday in Advent, a newly pregnant teenager makes for the hills, not slowing down until she reaches the home of Elizabeth, her also pregnant cousin. When her kinswoman welcomes her, she bursts into song, a song so subversive, governments twenty centuries later ban its public recitation. I love this gospel story. I love it because it's one of the rare narratives in the Bible that is female-centered. The priest, Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, and the man presumably in charge is literally silent throughout. I love it because its setting is domestic, intimate, and earthy. But most of all, I love it because it allows me to view the mother of Jesus as a whole person, to view her in Nadia Boltzweber's language without sentimentality or cynicism. This is no small achievement because we, the Church, have buried Mary under so many layers of theology, piety, and politics she's nearly impossible to excavate. Some of us pray to her. Others ignore her on monotheistic principle. Some call her Theotokos, the God-bearer. Others champion her as a model of holy femininity, ever sinless, ever virgin, ever mother. To some, she is a child prophet extraordinaire. To others, a victim of divine manipulation. Will the real Mary please stand up? <clears throat> well, I think she has. I think Luke's account of the visitation gives us a portrait of Mary that cuts through most of our assumptions and stereotypes. A nuanced portrait that balances fear with courage, doubt with faith, vulnerability with courage. Along the way, it gives us a portrait of ourselves, of what we, the Church, might become at our very best. Here, then, are three gifts I believe the visitation story offers us for our Advent meditations. The gift of community. As soon as Mary says yes to Gabriel's astonishing request, she goes in haste to see Elizabeth. She doesn't isolate herself. She doesn't keep God's revelation a secret. She doesn't play Lone Ranger and attempt to go it alone. Instead, she seeks out a fellow traveler. Although Luke doesn't elaborate on Mary's reasons for visiting Elizabeth, it's easy to imagine why a girl with a story as crazy-sounding as hers might make such an urgent journey. <clears throat> Tradition tells us that Mary is only 13 or 14 years old when the angel Gabriel appears to her. In her cultural and religious context, her pregnancy is a scandal. At best, it renders her an object of scornful gossip. At worst, it places her at risk of death by stoning. Needless to say, she needs affirmation, empathy, and companionship. She needs someone to recognize, nurture, deepen, and celebrate the work of God in her life. Someone who will receive, not reject, love, not judge, nourish, not condemn. Could there possibly be a better job description for the church? <clears throat> a better prototype for Christian community? What would it be like if we sought each other out with the trust and openness of Mary? What would it be like if we, like Elizabeth, received with tenderness the marginalized and vulnerable people who dared to come to us, seeking refuge and nurture? What would it be like if our communal worship echoed the full-throated call and response of these two kinswomen, who find themselves caught up in God's bold, risky, world-changing work, and decide to find solace in each other's company? In this Gospel story, Luke essentially describes the first Christian worship service in history. Mary and Elizabeth, the young and the old, the unmarried and the married, the socially established and the socially vulnerable, finding common ground in their love for Jesus. As Henry Nguyen describes it, God's most radical intervention into history was listened to and received in community. 
What a gorgeous and challenging example for us to live up to. <clears throat> the gift of blessing. Part of what's so challenging about Mary's story is its brevity. We know from the Gospel accounts that she's perplexed by Gabriel's announcement. We also know that she says yes to the angel's request anyway. But so much lies hidden beneath that seemingly quick and simple yes. So many questions, so many possibilities, so many occasions for doubt. Again, Luke doesn't elaborate, but I can well imagine the questions I would ask if I were in Mary's place. Is, G is Joseph going to stick around? Will my parents still love me? How will I survive the pain of childbirth? Who will help me when my time comes to deliver? Who will support this baby if my fiancé bails? Who am I to raise the Son of God? Is any of this for real, or am I losing my mind? Into this maelstrom of questions comes an outpouring of blessing. Blessed are you among women, Elizabeth tells Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth astutely connects the dots in Mary's story. She makes the connection between trust and blessing. In Elizabeth's mind, Mary's favored status has nothing to do with wealth, health, comfort, or ease. Her blessing lies solely in her willingness to trust God and to surrender to God's will, to lean hard into God's promises and believe that they will sustain her no matter what. I wonder how desperately Mary needs this blessing by the time she lands on Elizabeth's doorstep, exhausted and scared. How badly she needs someone to remind her that even after the angel leaves, the light fades and the vision recedes, God's faithfulness remains. My guess is Mary carries Elizabeth's blessing in her heart for the rest of her life. After all, her vocation as Jesus' mother is not easy. It leads her straight from scandal to danger to trauma to devastation. After all, how blessed can she feel when she delivers her firstborn in a smelly stable, when she becomes a refugee fleeing to Egypt to prevent her son's murder? What does blessing feel like for her years later when her miraculously conceived child is arrested, beaten, mocked, killed? God's call on Mary's life requires her to be profoundly courageous and countercultural, to trust an inner vision few others understand or value. Elizabeth recognizes that Mary's faith is precious, that faith alone will fuel the ongoing surrender Mary's journey will require. So she names and blesses Mary's capacity for deep trust as a gift worth cherishing. <clears throat> we don't live in a time or culture that encourages us to bless one another, and that's a terrible shame. What would it be like to recover Elizabeth's vocation of blessing, to cultivate spiritual attentiveness, to gaze long and deeply at each other, looking for glimpses of God? How would our churches change if we made a point of discerning, naming, and blessing the divine gifts we see in each other? Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry when she recognizes God's life-changing work in Mary. What a compelling image. Joy flourishes when we're willing to humbly bless each other. The Gift of Hope Once Mary receives both community and blessing, she finds her prophetic voice. At the end of our Gospel reading, she bursts into song. Not just any song, but a radical, hope-drenched song that soars with promise for the world's poor, broken-hearted, and oppressed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the Magnificat this way. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent song ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of, man, of humankind. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary sings, and then her song goes on to do just that, to make more visible and clear, to magnify for all the world a God invested in revolutionary and lasting change for the whole world. 
Mary describes a reality in which our sinful and unjust status quo is gorgeously reversed. The proud are scattered and the humble honored. The hungry are fed and the rich sent away. The powerful are brought down and the lowly are lifted up. Mary describes a world reordered and renewed, a world so beautifully characterized by love and justice, only the Christ she carries in her womb can birth it into being. As I mentioned at the beginning of this essay, Mary's song is so subversive in its cultural, socioeconomic, and political implications that it has been banned many times. When the British ruled India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in churches. Similarly, during the dirty war in Argentina, after the mothers of disappeared children posted the capital plaza with the words of the Magnificat, the military junta banned all public displays of the song. Too much hope, they decided, it's a dangerous thing. But too much hope is precisely what we're called to cultivate and proclaim on this fourth and final Sunday in Advent. The Messiah is almost here, Mary tells us, and the promise of his lasting reign changes everything. There is no unjust system, oppressive hierarchy, or arrogant leadership structure that God will not upend. No promise God will fail to keep. No broken, exploited life God will not save. So find your voice and sing your song. What does your Magnificat sound like? What does God look like when your soul magnifies him? What words have you found to express radical, revolutionary hope to the world? I want to close this essay with a poem by Jan Richardson about the visitation. <clears throat> As we come to the end of this Advent season, may her words encourage you to receive and share the gifts of community, blessing, and hope. The Messiah is coming, so make haste, be blessed, and magnify the Lord. A blessing called Sanctuary. You hardly knew how hungry you were to be gathered in, to receive the welcome that invited you to enter entirely, nothing of you found foreign or strange, nothing of your life that you were asked to leave behind or to carry in silence or in shame. Tentative steps became settling in, leaning into the blessing that unfolded you, taking your place in a circle that stunned you with its unimagined grace. You began to breathe again, to move without fear, to speak with abandon the words you carried in your bones that echoed in your being. You learned to sing. But the deal with this blessing is that it will not leave you alone, will not let you linger in safety, in stasis. The time will come when this blessing will ask you to leave, not because it is tired of you, but because it desires for you to become the sanctuary that you have found, to speak your word into the world, to tell what you have heard with your own ears, seen with your own eyes, known in your own heart, that you are beloved, precious child of God, beautiful to behold, and you are welcome, and more than welcome, here. For books this week, Dan reviews Hadrian's Wall by Adrian Goldsworthy. <clears throat> In the last several years, my wife and I enjoyed a number of long walks, including the 500-mile Camino Santiago in Spain, the 458-mile pilgrimage across southern France called Le Chemin de Puis, and the 350-mile La Vie de Francesco from Florence to Assisi to Rome. But there was one famous walk that we've always talked about but never done, the 84 miles from coast to coast in northern England that follow the world's heritage site of Hadrian's Wall. This book is a perfect introduction to the Wall Walk. It's short, it's written by an award-winning historian of the classical world, and it's about an inherently fascinating subject. Orphaned at the age of 10 when his father died, Hadrian became emperor of the empire, 16 million people in the year 117 when he was 41. Construction on the Wall began in AD 122 and continued until his death, although various refinements continued for decades. The Wall was used for some 300 years. 
By the early 5th century, the Roman state had ceased to function in Britain, so that effectively it had ceased to be part of the empire. Hadrian was as an architectural enthusiast, if amateur, who irritated the experts, although as Goldworthy shows, the wall was more than a vanity project, an architectural statement, the end point of civilization and the beginning of barbarism, or even a customs barrier. Rather, the wall was built to serve the Roman military. Soldiers were not there to serve the wall, but the wall was there to serve them. It was a formidable obstacle to unauthorized movement at the edge of the empire. It forced travelers to pass through a mile castle or fort, helped the military to monitor its border, enabled the state to refuse entry, and allowed the empire to levy tolls and taxes as it saw fit. Goldworthy explores every aspect of the wall. Hadrian the man, how the wall was built and manned, how the wall functioned, the anatomy of the wall that included a deep ditch 28 feet wide and 9 feet deep, various forts and fortlets, and what life was like on the wall for both soldiers and civilians. The wall was a military zone, and so it was also a place of towns, traders, businesses, shops, taverns, bars, workshops, temples, granaries, and hospitals. Goldsworthy sifts through the meager literary sources, the history of the wall's many excavations, the archaeology and artifacts. He does so in a way that eliminates the myths, but retains the magic of a bygone era. For movies this week, Dan reviews Children at the Border. It seems almost inconceivable. Some people have even drawn comparisons to what happened at Nazi concentration camps. This PBS Frontline documentary explores how in the summer of 2017, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under Trump enacted a zero-tolerance policy that separated children from parents at the border. He later reversed course and said families would not be separated. The narrative compares and contrasts policies under Obama, who in 2014 faced a massive surge of unaccompanied children crossing borders and was vilified as a deporter-in-chief. The film identifies a fundamental challenge. How do you maintain meaningful border enforcement, the concern of the right, and yet do it in a humanitarian way, the concern of the left? For further reflection on this complicated subject, see Dan's two book reviews, Francisco Cantu's memoir called The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border, and Lauren Markham, The Faraway Brothers, Two Young Migrants and the Making of an American Life. And finally, for poetry for this fourth Sunday in Advent, Virgin by Lucy Shaw. As if until that moment nothing real had happened since creation, as if outside the world were empty so that she and he were all there was, he mover, she moved upon, as if her submission were the most dynamic of all works, as if no one had ever said yes like that, as if one day the sun had no place in all the universe to pour its gold but her small room. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 23rd, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.